Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin. Thanks for stopping by for this edition of Pirates Talk. It was a very disappointing end to the week for the Hall as they got crunched by Xavier at home on Saturday, 74-62. The Pirates fell behind by 24 points early and never really recovered. So the 10-game winning streak is history with upcoming road games against Georgetown on Wednesday and the showdown on Saturday at Villanova with Seton Hall one game in front of the Wildcats in the race to number one in the conference. Last Saturday's game was the continuation of two troubling trends. One, they fell behind again. This time, they couldn't overcome it. You're playing with fire when you keep playing this way. Second, Miles Powell had another rough game, shooting one for nine from three and finishing with nine points. Over his last three games, Powell is averaging just under 16 points and shooting only 32% from the floor, just 14% on three-point attempts. It's hard to complain about anything Miles has done. I can only imagine the pressure he is under, and I marvel at how well he's handled it. But he is so critical to any long-term success the team will have that when his play drops, there's a level of concern. At this point, it's probably nothing more but a slump, but here's hoping it ends soon. There was good news from the game. Well, bad news during the game, good news a couple of days later. Quincy McKnight left the contest with a left knee injury, which looked significant at first, but an MRI on Monday was negative, and he's listed as day-to-day. So he'll be back soon, and as much as Powell is the man, McKnight's play as the point guard has been awesome, and any long-term absence could have been devastating. We'll see how long it takes for Quincy to come back to the lineup. Now on to this week's guest. P.J. Carlissimo was the head coach of the Pirates from 1982 to 1994. He led the Pirates from not only the very bottom of the Big East, but also near the very bottom of major college hoops. And he led them to magical heights. He took Seton Hall to the 1989 NCAA championship game, only to lose in controversial fashion on a dubious foul call by referee John Cloggerty. He is the winningest coach in Seton Hall history. He went on to an NBA career, which included a number of head coaching spots. He was an assistant coach on the gold medal winning USA basketball team in the 1992 Olympics and was an assistant coach to San Antonio headman Greg Popovich on three NBA championship teams. And he joins me now on Pirates Talk. PJ, when I introduced this segment, I mentioned your resume, and it is so accomplished from Olympic gold medal as an assistant coach, NBA championships, of course, all that you did at Seton Hall. You're a basketball lifer. You're still involved in the sport. What does being a basketball lifer mean to PJ Carlissimo? Well, it's just, uh, it means I've gotten paid for a lot of years um, <laughs> to, to do what I like to do. So it's... Uh, you know, I, I always felt I, I never considered it work. I mean, there were days, and uh, you certainly remember them well, Matt. But there were days when uh, it it, w- it wasn't easy. But but I, I was never unhappy. I mean, I've I've pretty much gotten to work every day happy, and uh, to get paid to to coach basketball, or nowadays more so to to broadcast basketball. The only coaching I'm doing is my son's eighth grade team. That it's not quite the same, but um, it, it's. Uh, it's something that I wanted to do. I didn't think I'd probably end up doing it for close to 50 years, but it's something I still enjoy. And, and the broadcast and the, uh, the different games I get to do on radio and TV still keep me in it. I enjoy going to the practices and, and, and the games and still seeing everybody. So it's, uh, you know, I've always felt like 
Um, there are so many people who don't seem to be or, or flat out complain that they don't like what they're doing. Uh, they do it because they have to do it. I've never felt that way, so I'm very lucky. I concur. I, I like to say that my dad worked for a living. I just happened to earn a living because it's great. <laughs> it's, it's not that we don't work at our, our respective uh, parts of the business, but it's so much fun. I enjoy each and every day. It's great. Yeah, outside people, you know, people always would look at our hours and go, how do you do that? You know, like during the season and there's long days and all that. And it was always like it never never seemed that way to me. I don't, I don't know what it would be like to have a nine-to-five job. So uh, hopefully I'll never find out. Yeah, me too. Hey, how's your son's basketball team doing under your tutelage? They're do- uh, well, they're doing well. We're in the semis of the city uh, uh, CYO organization. They, they, had a, they had a good year. He's a good player. He's a, he's a very good player, and uh, he's he's done well. We probably exceeded. We were hoping to make the playoffs, and now we've won our first two games, so we're in the semis. We're probably in over our head this week, but we got the semis coming up uh, next Saturday, and if we find a way to win, we'll play for the, uh, the city championship and the CYO. So uh, it's been a good year. It's been a lot of fun. Well, good luck in that. And how's your older son doing? Older son's having a good year also. He's a junior at Seattle Prep, which is a Jesuit high school here in town, and they're – I think they're thirteen and three. Um, that the league in Seattle is, I, I think it might be the toughest league in the country. I mean, there's seventeen teams. There's a slew of guys in the NBA right now, six or seven guys from this one league um, that that are all playing. I don't know what it is about the water in Seattle or what, but there's been so many really good players come out of this league. Jamal Crawford and Nate Robinson, probably the two, Jason Terry from years ago, but they're, they're all from uh, this 17 team league. And his team right now is in third place and they're, they're qualified for districts. They'll hopefully, if they do well in the districts, they'll go to the States. And he's, uh, he's starting for the second year. He's playing very well. And uh, he shoots it a lot better than, than I ever did. So uh, hopefully he's going to be able to go on and play in college also. Well, that's awesome. And we wish him and your younger son the very best of luck. So we're not going to go through every step, every game, every season at Seton Hall because we'd be here forever. But <laughs> just the let's wind back the time machine a little bit. And that is, why did you take the job at Seton Hall because the conditions weren't great. They were entering the Big East. They had just entered the Big East. What was the lure and what was it like when you finally walked into that campus office and said, okay, now I'm in charge? Well, it was, it was a great opportunity. I mean, I, I, again, I was, I was happy. I was in my – I just uh, finished in my sixth year at Wagner College. Um, and it was, uh, it was just what you said. It was the Big East. Uh, it was an opportunity to coach in what was, had already established itself in uh, the first couple of years in the league when Bill Raftery and Hadi Mahan were coaching. Um, there was no question how good the league was at that point and was going to be. And, and people forget, Matt, back then, you, you remember well, but uh, when I first went to Wagner, the only league in the entire East Coast was the Ivy League. And then the Eastern Eight started up and Rutgers went uh, to the Eastern Eight. All of us were in those kind of affiliations, if you will, where you know all the teams in the uh, ECAC Metro, they would, would just play each other, but there was no scheduling requirements. Everybody didn't play everybody else. And at the end of the year, a committee would pick the best four teams and we'd get a bid. We got one bid from the ECAC Metro area and one from up in New England and one from down in the south in the D.C., Virginia area. And um, all of a sudden, uh, Dave Gavitt had the idea to start the Big East, and uh, it just took off right away. Coincidentally, at the same time, ESPN was founded, and the two kind of uh, 
found each other. ESPN needed programming. The Big East loved the opportunity to be on television, and both of them just kind of took off like a skyrocket. And uh, the hall, as you mentioned, was at the bottom of the league at the time. And, and I think that's as was Providence, as was UConn, which a lot of people don't remember. But uh, when I first took the job, the three of us, the three schools, Providence, Connecticut, and Seton Hall were down at the bottom. And, you know, over the course of the 12 years, we all got to Final Fours and, and got things turned around. And the, the primary reason, uh, I can't speak to the other schools, but I know the reason that, that the Hall was at the bottom was they were a little slow to realize that it, w- it was a different era. And yes, they were playing the same schools they had played for a lot of years, but, you know, St. John's and Georgetown and, and Villanova and, you know, the other teams in the league were not the same anymore because the other teams, when they, when they realized what this league was all about, they made a stronger financial commitment and they had full-time basketball assistants and they had a, you know, a much better recruiting budget. Some of them built new facilities and um, they just stepped up their commitment to the sport of basketball and the hall, like some of the other schools in the league didn't do that initially. And it was just, it was impossible to compete. I mean, when, when Billy and Hottie were coaching at the hall, they didn't, you didn't have full-time assistants. Hottie was still, working at Orange High School, and, you know, John Murphy was a police lieutenant in Newark. Melvin Knight was a, actually, a, you know, an assistant athletic director at the same time he was coaching. So you had, you know, Billy trying to compete um, with basically no offices without full-time assistance and with the recruiting budget that just didn't compare to the other teams in the league. You know, prior, five years prior to that, all those, or a lot of those schools were in the same boat. Syracuse wasn't. Uh, Pittsburgh wasn't, but um, the, the Catholic schools, you know, were. They weren't that much different from each other. And it took the Hall a little while to realize that uh, you needed to step up the commitment. And when I got to the Hall, it was it was a challenge for sure, but be, for those reasons. I mean, we literally, when, when you're trying to create a, an office, we needed offices for, for us. We, when you have full-time assistants, you need an office for the assistants. And we didn't have that. We didn't have the recruiting budget at the time that we needed to be able to go out and, and, and get uh, the kind of players you needed to compete in the league. And so for a lot of reasons, um, we, we weren't at square one. We weren't where we needed to be. And then, again, even getting to that, to that level, you know, getting to the level where the other teams in the league were, then you had to compete with them. They all had those same resources available. So, I mean, it was really a challenging process in the beginning without question, without the commitment. And the commitment came from the hall. But even when you got the commitment, that just puts you where these other schools had, had been in some cases for four or five years. So they were a little bit ahead of you. Uh, they were significantly ahead of you in terms of uh, some of the, the talent they had available to them. So um, it, it took a while. But it was, when it was all said and done, Matt, what it came down to was getting the same level of player that these other schools had. And when you're, you know, if you're competing against Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen and Eddie Pinckney and Pearl White, just, you know, pick a school and name the great players. Um, once we got, and, and I always go back to, and I'm not, I don't want to demean the players we had early. We had Andre McLeod. We had some really good players early, but we didn't have enough of them. But the, what turned it around for us was when Mark Bryan decided to come to, to Seton Hall because we got then the elite player in the state of New Jersey. Uh, and when he, Mark could have gone you know, virtually anywhere in the country, when he made a decision to stay home and to play at Seton Hall, 
that more than any other thing that ever happened to us turned the program around. And what? it took took time, you know. But March junior year, we finally got to an NIT, which we hadn't been. I don't know, but it was a long time. We hadn't been to an NIT uh, in a long time. We got there March junior year. And then March senior year, which was 88, we got to the NCAA for the first time in the school's history. And, you know, Mark coming in, that opened the door. That's what enabled our assistant coaches. And, and I always said it, and, you know, a lot of people thought we were just being Chamber of Commerce and being nice. But, I mean, Frank Sullivan, John Carroll, you know, guys you know really well, Mike Brown, Rod Baker, Joe Napolitano, those guys, Howie Rupert, when – they were able to convince Mark initially, and then that group from uh, New York, John Morton and Gerald Green and Darrell Walker, that was three first-team All-City players from New York. Um, that, then we were, you know, home free. We, you know, we had broken through in terms of the local recruiting, and we were able to go get um, and keep the best players in New Jersey or the best players in New York City home. And once we got that, then we were able to be successful. Then you were able to coach, so to speak, and actually not worry about building a program. What was the key to getting Mark Bryant to stay home? He went to Columbia right around <laughs> right around the corner. Right, right next to I tell you, the, the key the was recruiting Mark budget was couldn't extremely have been that close high. with his mother. And, and Mike Brown did a great job of recruiting. But the truth was Mark didn't want to go away. Mark wanted to stay near his family. And Mark loved the idea of playing basketball um, close to home and his family and friends being able to watch him play at the Meadowlands. And it was as simple as that. I'm not saying Mike didn't work really hard, but I mean, the, the reality was Mark didn't want to go away. And I, I remember, you know, sitting in his living room, but I, I also know what it was like because I've sat there myself when you know you're making your pitch and you're just looking at the guy and, and he's really not listening. And I know those other schools that were in there, and there was a ton of them that came in and, and tried to convince Mark to go away, but it wasn't going to happen. Mark Bryant was going to stay home. Uh, he loved his family. He loved New Jersey, and he wanted to play there. And fortunately for us, Seton Hall was a vehicle that – you know, enable them to play at a, a really elite level of, of college basketball. So uh, it, it was really as simple as that. And then we were able to sell that same opportunity to a lot of, you know, a lot of other local guys, the three I mentioned in New York, and then the, the breakthrough with the St. Anthony's guys, you know, to be able to get Danny Hurley and Jerry Walker and Terry Dayer. So, you know, all those incremental steps were really important to us. But uh, it, it just got to the point where, it was a you know a very viable option for a local player. You weren't going to get all the local players, but players knew that if they, if they came here, they a they would you know get to play in arguably the best league in the country. They were going to get tremendous exposure in terms of um, television and radio and, and print coverage, and they were you know they'd be able to become all Americans or get to NCAA tournaments. But I think most importantly in those days, it was the Meadowlands. You know, now, now it's the, the pro, uh, their family and friends could see them play not once in a while, but you know, 15 times a year. And when there were, when it was a home game that their family and friends could be there with them and they could get home on weekends if they, if they wanted to. And, uh, you know, so it became a, the cell was, do you want to do it locally or do you want to, you know, go away from home. You want to go somewhere else. But in terms of the basketball, you couldn't get, you couldn't be any better. Uh, it wasn't like somebody else who said, well, if you come to our place, you're going to play in a better league or you're going to play in a better building or you're going to get, you know, more coverage. They weren't going to get any of those things. We had all those things already covered. Uh, you know, once we were able to, you know, recruit some of these guys and show that we could be successful with these players, um, the, the product just kind of sold itself. 
Uh, Mark Bryant, uh, Seton Hall Hall of Famer, and people should look up if they don't know. I, I would imagine most Seton Hall fans do know what kind of a professional career he had. He was in the NBA, still is forever, but as a player, he had, I don't know, a 16-year career or something like that. Oh, yeah, no, long-time career. And again, a, a quality player, was a rotation player in the league for a long time, always extremely popular with his, co- with his coaches because he was a winner, he was a competitor. That's why he's still coaching. I mean, he's been coaching. You talk about lifer. Yeah. Mark's got a leg up on it. He's not, he's not quite as old uh, as, as, as we are, but um, he's, he's, you know, He's made a really good career for himself. He's an excellent coach and really doing a really good job. And, you know, for a lot, he was with us here in Seattle. I live in Seattle now. He was in uh, Seattle for one year and then Oklahoma City for a lot of years and uh, in, in Phoenix now with, uh, with Monty Williams. I'm going to have to uh, track him down, get him on a Pirates uh, Talk podcast. It would be great to spend some time with him. So you, you get him and things are starting to turn around. And Seton Hall gets its first NCAA bid in 98. But earlier that year, there's some turmoil. You get off to a slow start and the student body is calling for your head. And uh, there was a vote in the student Senate. It was just a crazy time given where you had come from and where you were about to take this team. What was that like when you're, your own student body is turning against you. Like, don't you know what we had been through to get to this point? And now you're, you're calling for my head. Well, you know, they're, they're frustrated. I'm not saying it was my favorite time, but again, (laughs) I mean, we'd, we'd already been through a lot of that at the Meadowlands, even some games in Walsh. There was a time when we still played a lot of the non-conference games on campus. And, uh, you know, there was frustration and it was understandable. We had not won, in a long time at Seton Hall. And I'd been there a while. That was the thing that a lot of people didn't, didn't realize. It took us time to get it turned around. It wasn't like we turned it around in a year or two years. It, it took a while. And even though we felt then, you know, even with the NIT the year before, we felt that the foundation was there then, that, that you know, we had turned the corner. But it, until you do it on the floor, it's not the same. And we were in early January, early part of the league schedule, we were doing okay, but we weren't doing well enough to, you know, be confident that we were going to get a bid or, you know, accomplish the things that later on we did. And the pit game, I think, was the biggest game. I think that was the one that kind of solidified it for us. But, um, you know, as we got better when the year went on, those same people, you know, the same people that weren't happy with this and, and probably boot. And I say us, you know, more directed toward me, not toward the team. But I mean, hey, uh, people that, that, you know, wanted to make a change were the same people that later on became, you know, our most rabid fans and, and great supporters. So and, you know, that's that's the nature of of sports. It's uh you know, everybody wants to win. And uh, we hadn't won in a long time. And when we finally got it turned, it was great. And that was one of the things that a lot of people didn't realize years later. You know, like a lot of people, you know, often would say, like, well, you had opportunities. Why didn't you go somewhere else? Well, you know, the, the hall stood by us. Uh, Monsignor Patillo in particular was, and we had a number, but, you know, the two athletic directors, Richie Regan and Larry Keating, were not good. They were phenomenal. Uh, in terms of their support, they always had our back, uh, and and the the different presidents, and there was a number of them. But uh, you know, Father Peterson, Monsignor Liddy, uh, Doctor D'Alessio, uh, but but uh, Monsignor Patillo at, at the time, Doctor Patillo now, um, they backed us, and they said, "No, look, we're gonna we're staying with him." And uh, fortunately for us, and and I always said that, Matt, you remember the. The 89 team, which was really only our second NCAA, was the next year mm-hmm. after Mark graduated uh, in, in 88. 
but I, we, we always felt, the coaches felt very strongly that that team would have had that kind of success for sure that year. But most schools might not have stayed the course with us. It might have been a different coaching staff. You've seen that happen a lot where, you know, they change coaches and all of a sudden look at the success they had. And, you, you know, when you look behind the scenes, you, you kind of say, hey, um, these guys were all recruited by the previous guys. They, they helped these guys when they were freshmen and sophomores and juniors. And now when it's time for them to, you know, reap the rewards, they weren't there anymore. And, and the hall stayed with us. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many times through that, especially through the 88, 89 year that we were appreciative of the fact that we were given that opportunity and we got to enjoy it. Uh, that, that wouldn't happen in a lot of other places. No, it would not have. And what a ride that year turned out to be. In January of that year, sell out at the Meadowlands, you beat Georgetown. Was that the signature win or was it maybe the win over Syracuse in the Big East tournament in 93 or even before that in 91 against Georgetown? Is there a win in that era, that span that stands out? Not one. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say not one. I remember the pit one in March year because getting to the NCAA for the first time was just such a, you know, it's hard to say now. Like, it's kind of amazing when you look back, particularly when you, you realize that we were in the Final Four in 89, and a lot of people didn't realize that we had just been in our first NCAA tournament the prior year. Um, but so I, I say the pit, the pit game March year for sure. Georgetown, no question, to sell out the Meadowlands and beat them. And I don't, it was, I don't remember if it was Big Monday or something like that, but it was definitely an ESPN game. or It was a weekday game. I don't think it was a CBS game. I think it was a, an ESPN game. That was a huge game. Uh, I remember one when we weren't even that good. I remember beating Georgetown at Georgetown uh, the year before that. And, uh, but, but winning the, 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 the two tournaments, the two tournament, uh, went to win the big East tournament, um, in, in, uh, Madison square garden, those two wins were huge. Uh, I remember Terry's last game, which we, I think we had already clinched the regular season, but whatever year that was, I believe it was 92, 93, but, um, that was the only year where we won both the regular season and the big East tournament. Um, that, that, I remember that last game of the regular season. I think it was St. John's. It was, you know, uh, the, the scene, Terry's last game, um, last home game. Um, so th- there was, fortunately for us, there were a couple. It would be hard to pick one that stood out, but we were lucky. There was four or five that were really big ones. During the run to the final four, you know, everybody talks, okay, that first weekend, and now you're into the second weekend. And then people seem to jump ahead either to the Michigan game or the Duke game, the semifinal game. But you beat then, and to some extent still, NCAA royalty in the in-between weekend. And people seem to forget or overlook, or maybe it's because of what followed, Indiana and then UNLV. And, and you smoked the run in Rebels. Denver was incredible uh, because, we, you know, we, we thought we were good. The year before we'd gotten beat, we won our first game. It was kind of funny, Matt, but in 88 – you know, we finally make it to the NCAA for the first time, which was, you know, a, a great achievement in itself. But then our first game is against uh, Texas Western, now UTEP, but I mean, it's against Don Haskins in Texas Western. I mean, you talk about the tradition that that school had, and it's in Pauley Pavilion. So, I mean, it was just, it was really amazing to, okay, you're in the NCAAs, and by the way, here's your draw. You, you have Texas Western coached by Don Haskins, and you're playing in Pauley Pavilion, so it was it was phenomenal. And we were, you know, we were able to win our first one, and then we got drilled by uh, Arizona, Final Fourteen. They didn't win it. I actually thought they'd win it, but Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott, and that team, a really, really good uh, Arizona team. But uh, they beat us in the second round. 
uh, in Pauly. And then the following year, um, we're in Tucson, uh, and we win our first two games, uh, Southwest Missouri's Charlie Spoonauer and Evansville uh, with Jimmy Cruz. And we get to go to Denver, and as you said, you, you know, you're hooking up with two probably of, of the coaching icons uh, of all time, but certainly of that era. You got uh, Bobby Knight's Indiana team, and then you got uh, Tark at, at UNLV. And uh, Lou was the fourth team there, I think, too. I think Arizona was the fourth team there, if I'm not mistaken. We, we didn't. We ended up not playing them, but um, at the time. Uh, it might even still be true, but I think it was the two worst losses, the worst loss Indiana had ever had in an NCAA tournament game, and the biggest by, by margin. Uh, and then the uh, same thing happened to, to UNLV. And, uh, you know, to look back now and you say, well, who would you beat to get to the Final Four? Well, we beat Indiana, we beat UNLV. Uh, it, was, it was that weekend was really special. And, and you're right, when you, you, know, you, you get to the Final Four, that kind of dwarfs everything that happened before it. But... Uh, I remember vividly those two wins. It was McNichol. I've got a game in, in Denver next week. As a matter of fact, I got Lakers at Denver. Um, but it's, you know, in the new center, it's in Pepsi, a mm-hmm. newer building. And for years it was McNichols Arena. And uh, I remember those two wins were phenomenal. Uh, and again, th- that was when people realized how good we were. Um, and uh, both of them, both of the coaches were so you know, we're so gracious. And it's funny, we ended up, all those teams, we played them twice. Indiana beat us in the finals of a preseason NIT with Calbert Chaney. And the only other time we played them was in McNichols. And Vegas, we played them twice. We beat them uh, in the round of eight in Denver in 89. And two years later, we were back in the very same building in Seattle in the Kingdome. They beat us in the round of eight to go to uh, I think Minneapolis or Indianapolis, 91. They were defending champ. They were undefeated, 31-0, and and they beat us um, to go there. It's the only two times we played Vegas at that point, uh, both in the Elite Eight. So it was a couple programs we had split with and only played. Tw- Duke, the same thing. Duke beat us in the round of 16 in the Spectrum, the uh, game before the long pass, the uh, Grand Hill Christian Leitner pass. Um, they beat us in the Spectrum, and then we beat them in the Final Four in uh, – in uh, 91 or excuse me in, in 89 so it's funny those those great programs with the great coaches we just ended up hooking up with uh, all of them twice and fortunately we got splits uh we'll just spend a few more minutes with you because i know you're very busy and in, you beat duke in the semi you're down big and somehow you rally and it's a 35 point turnaround you're down 18 in the first half you beat them by 17 and then it's on to the championship game uh the first and so far only visit to a championship game ncaa championship game i don't want to forget Correct. when the nit was the champion tournament exactly. uh, seton hall won that but the first and only national championship NCAA game Uh, at any rate uh, we can boil it down you handled the way that ended with such class your team did the John Morton's the Gerald Green's the Andrew Gaze's Uh, we know what happened it's overtime a foul is called as Bill Raftery who (laughs) was one of the predecessors Hottie was in there for the one year would say you know ticky tack but (laughs) (laughs) how how hard was it? Like, what? Why did you handle it that way? What was important to handle it that way when John Cloggerty made that call and it cost Seton Hall the championship? As Ramil Robinson made both free throws. Well, first of all, you can't obviously you can't change it. And when it when it happened, um, you know, as it happened, we had the ball. 
we couldn't wind it. We couldn't take the last shot. We we could wind it down low, but we couldn't go all the way to the wire. And we ran a little stall that we'd been with a one four kind of delay that we do it, and then we isolated John Morton. And John had arguably his best game as a as a Seton Hall player in that championship. Thirty five points. Uh, yeah, and uh, we ran it down as as low as we could, and uh, John got a good shot in front of the rim, and it didn't go. And then you know they're come they're pushing the ball down the court. Ramil's pushing it, and uh, you know it's probably going to come down to you know make or miss. It's going to be uh, a shot one way or the other. And Gerald, you know, picked him up. Gerald Green picked him up uh, cross, after he crossed half court. And um, there's a little bit of contact. And it's not like there was nothing, but there's a little bit of contact. But there's certainly a foul that um, very, very rarely is called in, a, in any time in a game, but certainly not in that situation when you're, you know, going down for the last uh, the last opportunity. And uh, But he blew the whistle. And uh, Ramil, who was not a good free-throw shooter, um, I think in the 60s, maybe even low 60s, uh, has got a one-on-one uh, to win it. So, I mean, hey, you got to deal with what's going on right there. I mean, he's one-on-one. I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, well, good, it's Romeo. It's not Glenn Rice. It's not an 85% free-throw shooter. Hopefully we'll get a, a split or a miss out of this or whatever happens. And so you, you kind of deal with it. And, and, of course, he makes both of them. We have a chance. It's funny because we had run a – there was a – end game play that we had practiced all the time, including that morning at, at Seattle university. when we had our shoot around and um, I, I was actually confident we were going to, you know, we, we could execute it. And uh, it, it was different, but it was similar to remember the Homer drew with uh, Bryce, the long play at Valpo where yeah, they throw yeah. the ball. And it was, a, it wasn't a hook and ladder. It was supposed to go from Ramon Ramos to Daryl Walker. Uh, and then Daryl was going to throw it to either Andrew or John Morton, depending on which one was open. Um, but uh, Fish did a good job. He put uh, he put Terry Mills on the ball, big guy on the ball, and Ramon couldn't back up quite far enough because I forget which side he was on. The media, like the one side's the photographers, the other side's the cheerleaders. But um, he couldn't back up quite far enough, and he didn't. He, the, the play was to make a pass to the foul line area, and it kind of spun because it was you know it kind of hooked. Daryl did a good job even catching the ball, but he wasn't able to make the pass to. John or uh, or Andrew, and uh, you know Daryl uh, threw a shot, banked it, tried to bank it in, but it was a tough, you know, almost by the hash mark shot. I mean, it kind of a desperation heave um, didn't go, and then it's over. So I mean, it like it ends that abruptly, and so you had. To, I mean, first of all, Michigan Michigan won. It wasn't their fault what happened, and Ramil had to make the two free throws, which he did. Um, what everybody forgets, if the call's not made. Um, either Ramil's going to shoot it, which I don't think was going to happen, or he probably throws it, I think, to Lloyd Vaught, who was kind of on his right wing. I think Lloyd Vaught's going to probably end up getting an 18-foot jump shot uh, to win or lose the game uh, is what I think would have evolved. It wasn't, I don't think there was enough time for Ramil to get all the way to the rim. I think knowing Ramil as a point guard, and he probably would have kicked it to the guy on his right, which was Loy Vaught, and Loy would have got a jump shot, and it, you know, make or miss, and that would have that would have been the way it ended. But um, and in terms of officials, you don't get bad officials in an NCAA championship game ever. Um, if I could have picked the officials that, like when we came out, that you never knew who the officials were in those days. Uh, we came out in the floor, and it's uh, I believe it was Mickey Crowley, John, and uh, 
I think it was uh, Tom Rucker from uh, you, you had actually you had a Big Ten official, a Big East official, and uh, you know another great official in John, primarily Southeastern Conference and ACC. I mean, I, I love John Clockety as an official. So like when I see the officials, I'm saying, great, this is a tremendous crew. So you know what are you going to do? The call goes against you if you you start moaning and crying and you know with the what ifs, it kind of detracts from Michigan and and you know their celebration. It was a great game. Uh, they won it. And I think it wouldn't have been, um, wouldn't have served any purpose to, you know, embarrass the officials or detract from what Michigan had done. So we just decided to take the high road and the, the, the players all did the same thing and said, Hey, you know, we, we had opportunities. We didn't, I, Matty, I swear that year, I don't know if we missed a big free throw. We missed two in the championship game, front end of two one and ones. We pretty much it was a year where when we needed to make we were we were a good free throw shooting team. It wasn't like it was by accident. Like we had a lot of guys eighty percent, and they just when we needed to make a shot, we made a shot. We had one in regulation and one in the overtime, a front end of one and one that twice could have made it a two possession game, and we missed both of them. So and we've made mistakes along the way, um, you know, coaching mistakes and playing mistakes. So there was all there were things we could have done differently. Um, nothing that we would have changed. I mean, I, honestly, when it was over, we just said, hey, guys, we, we did what we wanted to do. We, we played who we wanted to play. We called the plays, and guys got shots, and then we just didn't do it. So um, it, it wasn't something that, that I think you could second guess. Uh, we felt w- good about how we had played, how we had competed, and we just said, hey, that's it. You know, congratulations to Michigan. We can't change it. And in, in a funny way, our guys probably got more recognition, if you will, or more compliments um, than almost any team that ever lost in a championship game because of the way they handled it. So, uh, and it wasn't that wasn't the idea. The idea was, <laughs> hey, the, the, this is this is what happened, and let's deal with it. And again, it's one of those things that you know it's a cliche, but you talk about the things you you, you learn as much when you lose, sometimes more as you do when you win. And our guys just did a, a fantastic job in terms of how they did handle it with the media and with the, you know, everybody that was there. And that will always be part of the narrative, even though I know every Seton Hall pa- a fan who saw that game or knows of it is still gnashing his or her teeth over uh, that foul call. And, and as you mentioned, Ramil Robinson was not a good free throw shooter. He wasn't a free th- good free throw shooter in the pros either, but boy, he made those two and they were daggers. No he question. He made two when it mattered. He did. Absolutely. Onions as our good friend would say. Uh, <laughs> after the season, Kentucky courted you. Were you close to le- leaving at that point? No, I, I really wasn't. I, I made a mistake in going down there. Um, just because uh, it, it drew the process on. And it, it became a little bit of a tough decision, but in my heart, I, I didn't think I was ever going anywhere. C.M. Newton was a very good friend um, who was the athletic director at Kentucky at the time. And obviously Kentucky's a, a place where, you know, it's not easy, but it's a place where national championships are, are expected and uh, they have the resources to, to help you, you know, to help you do that. And, uh, so it was it was tempting, and and I you know I talked to I talked to Dave Gavitt, I talked to obviously talked to Larry Keating and Richie in our place, but I talked to Bobby Knight, I talked to Mike K, I talked to Jim Bay. I have a lot of good friends, and probably the consensus for most of them was, "You're crazy. You got to take the job. It's just it's one of the most special jobs in college basketball, and and you're you're going to win a national championship." And uh, and it just you know like as I said, uh, we felt it was a unique circumstance what we had been through. 
at the hall, and we just at that point, I mean, that was right after it, and we just, frankly, I felt that uh, you know we were okay, and we we would get back, and we came close two years later, mm-hmm. uh, we got to some Sweet Sixteens, but the, the the team two years later came very close. The Anthony Avent team in '91, where I thought we could beat. Um, Vegas, that undefeated Vegas team, uh, and we we didn't. But Mike got him. I remember talking to Mike K that that night. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think they won the same night uh, that we lost, and they were gonna they were gonna play them uh, in in uh, I think I always forget what it was Indianapolis or Minneapolis, but it was Minneapolis. and they had gotten drilled. They had gotten drilled by Vegas the year before in the championship in Denver, ironically in '90 because Vegas won it in '90, but. Um, I, I thought the Vegas team that won it might have been a little better than the undefeated team, and uh, Mike Mike K got them. But um, you know, I, I thought we'd get back, I, I, and I was real happy with where I was. So uh, getting down there messed things up because when you see Kentucky and you see all they have, and it was a very generous offer, and so it kind of it, it didn't linger long. It was it was the whole thing was over in about a week. But um, yeah, I, I, I remember talking to people. I I was speaking at Georgetown's basketball dinner that that uh I, I flew from lexington to washington dc because i was speaking for john at georgetown's dinner and obviously talked to john also about the whole thing so uh but it, it was you know within a couple of days we made our decision and, and that was uh, that was the end of it and eventually you uh led seton hall after those two appearances they made four more in a row before you wound up leaving for the nba and uh just a great run uh, both as a head coach and longtime assistant to Greg Popovich at San Antonio. So, do you st- do you watch the hall? Do you keep up with them from your perch and? Oh seat? no, for sure. I I, I, t- I text Kevin. I don't I don't bother him too much on the phone. I'll call once in a while. But I text a lot. Uh, no, I, I watch them all the time. I know their schedule. I know when they're playing, and definitely follow uh, what what they're doing. And I usually see Kevin a couple times. Uh, we don't get to golf as much as uh, we would like, but uh, he and Pat have been really good and. I've been back a number of times, but no, no, no. I, I stay in very close touch with, with Kevin and watch the program and follow when, whenever I can. Usually, unfortunately, it's from afar. And I've never, I do the tournament every year for Westwood One, but I've never, got, I've never uh, gotten their region or their first round. Uh, hope one, I, I doubt I'll get it this year because I'm usually out in the West, and I, I think for sure, I hope for sure, there'll be a, a top seed in the East, so I don't think I'll get them again this year, maybe in a, maybe in a regional. What do you think about the, this club? I think it's an excellent team. I think they've got uh, all the pieces you need. I, I think that, first of all, they have the great player. Uh, I think they've got really good size. I mean, they've got a couple of, of really good, talented bigs. Uh, I think they defend well. Uh, they're in a conference, obviously, where they're tested. Uh, so they're going to be ready when it comes to the to the tournament. You know, they're used to playing big games. They're used to playing on the national stage. Uh, they're extremely well coached. I mean, I think they've got every ingredient you need to win a national championship. You just need to be really lucky. You need to be healthy uh, and you need to be playing, you know, your best basketball in, in March and April. And hopefully that's going to be the case. When you agreed to do this, you said, how much time? I said, oh, 20, 25 minutes. We're coming up on 35, and I do appreciate it. This is the last question, I promise. No problem. You're the winningest coach in school history. That may change. Kevin's doing a great job. That'll change for sure. <laughs> Kevin stays there. It'll change for sure. I mean, he's just done a magnificent job, and, and they're, they're in the midst of another great run. And records are made to be broken. But when it's all said and done, how would you like Seton Hall people who were there and maybe also look back at history and, and your time, remember that period and remember PJ Carlissimo. Well, I, 
I just think that it was, uh, I, I don't have to ask anything. I think that the people that were there then uh, loved it and enjoyed it. I always said that the, our school, no one goes to the Final Four, even a school like Duke that seems to go every other year. Um, no school goes to the Final Four and doesn't enjoy it. But I, I always felt that no school enjoyed a Final Four more than we did. The only thing that's happened like it recently is Loyola Chicago a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I just think that for our fans, for the state, the, the metropolitan area, uh, I, I just think it was such a phenomenal, enjoyable experience uh, that, that it was great. But I think that um, just looking back at our basketball program, um, we, we, you know, early years of the Big East were really tough, and it was understandable why it was. But um, we, we, we got things turned around and we got to, we got the school to a level that, that it deserved to be at. You know, you mentioned the, the NIT team back in the fifties with Richie and Walter Dukes and those guys. And, uh, it was, uh, we just feel really good about what we were able to accomplish there, but maybe more, more than anything was the, the guys we, we had, we were really lucky. Obviously we had good basketball players that we wouldn't have been, uh, nearly as successful. We had good people. We had a lot of people, I think, represented the hall very, very well and, and still continued, still continue to, you know, guys who graduated from the hall and did things the right way and are still doing it the right way. Like you look at what Jerry Walker's doing, uh, in Jersey city right now. So, uh, it was, uh, I just feel good about the people we brought to the hall, the way they represented the hall, and uh, the fact that we were able to win uh, our share of games. It was uh, it was a great time for me. I mean, everybody talks about the hall. The, the hall was great to us. Uh, it really was. The hall was a, a great place to work, and it was a, a great place for us to learn and uh, grow as coaches also. So um, it's just uh, – my memories are great. Hopefully, you know, people feel the same way about what, you know, the things that our coaches and our players did during that time. Well, Seton Hall came from the depths of the Big East, and it was a magic carpet ride uh, to among the elite in NCAA basketball. They're back there again under Kevin Willard. PJ, it's been my pleasure to spend some time reliving those memories, and hopefully we'll run into each other uh, as we uh, you know, go through this season. Maybe you'll be doing a Seton Hall game that I'll be at, whatever, but I'd love to catch up and chat again, but thanks very much for your time here. You're welcome, Matt. Great being with you again. And that'll do it for this week's edition of Pirates Talk. Thanks once again to my guest, PJ Carlissimo, and thank you for your company. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everyone.